You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Today, we start a brand new series in the book of Daniel. And I am very excited. At least in my tenure here at Grace, we have never preached and learned through the book of Daniel together on a Sunday morning. And I am so excited about what I'm already learning and I think what we're going to learn together in the next six months. This is not, well, let me say what it is. So this is going to be a six-month study through the book of Daniel, so it'll take us into the summer. We're not going to do every single verse. We'd be here the next three years, at least, if we did that, but we are going to do a good look at this book together. And we thought one of the best ways to kick off this book and to explore it together is to give you an overview, because it's really important that you understand how this fits together in order to really get as much as possible out of where we're going to go these next months together. So I thought, okay, I can take a considerable amount of time and do this for you, or we can turn to a resource that we've used in the past that does this so wisely and so well. What I'm about to show you is from the Bible Project, and we have used this resource in the past to introduce other sermon series that we've done. Uh, You'll recognize the voice, many of you, who narrates this. This is Tim Mackey, who has preached here at Grace before. He's my Hebrew mentor, and um, he's on the faculty at Western Seminary. But also, another contributor to this series is our own Gary Brashears. He is the theological resource for this. But this is a, a very comprehensive, very concise, though, and compelling overview of the book of Daniel that we're going to watch together and then we'll extract some things from that for us in the here and now. But let's watch this together. The book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. The story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David. Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. 
But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refused to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted, they're thrown into a fiery furnace, but God delivers them from death and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a God, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts and like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast, identified as a really evil empire, and it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of Man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that's what these final three visions set out to explore.
In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is the image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God, who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John the visionary who wrote the Revelation could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings and their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. Woo! Nothing like Daniel through a fire hose in eight minutes, right? <laughs> There'll be a test before we let any of you leave, okay? You need, to, you need to take care of all that. Isn't that great? So well done. Let's close in prayer. My work is done. <laughs> Easiest sermon I've ever preached. But this again can be found at the Bible Project. Um, if you just Google search that, these videos are free. You can download them to have them, um, and we want to say that in particular for our friends who will be listening to this on the internet, but, uh, or podcasting this, but that's where you can access this video if you'd like to see it again. I've seen this multiple times, and every time I watch it, I go, oh, yeah. I mean, it's just loaded, right? So let's try to bring some of that together, okay? And as we do, 
some dynamics that are important for us to understand about the book of Daniel. And then we're really going to look at how we apply some of this to the here and now. This is a historical and prophetic book. At the time that this was given to Daniel, that this was written, this was all future. But now with the benefit of hindsight and history, we can look back and see how some very specific things played out in these prophecies. But there's also a futuristic element. As you heard from this, there are prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled because there are really two types of literary styles that meet in this book. It is historical narrative. It is telling a story of what truly happened, but it's also telling us what's truly going to happen in the future in this style of, of writing, this genre called apocalyptic. And this is a, a writing style that really had its heyday about 200 years before Jesus was born and then really went extinct and vanished about 200 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So apocalyptic is written in symbols and imagery and it's, it can be very, very confusing because it's its own literary style and we're hoping to be able to give you some tools to be able to understand and apply narrative and apocalyptic in this series because Daniel and understanding Daniel is fundamental to understanding the book of Revelation which is apocalyptic. And much of what Revelation reaches back to and talks about in what it says is reaching back into Daniel. So we'll try to give you some handles here and there for that. But this book is profoundly practical and very, very personal and applicable. I think you'll find that this book is going to speak powerfully to our day and age today. How do you live in a culture like ours that is in many ways hostile to Christianity? How do you live distinctly in a culture like that? How do you navigate all the gray that continues to surface in life and, and in our culture? How, how, do you, how do you make your way through that in a way that, that honors God and honors his word? And really, this is a timely, timeless book for us. It's timely, and again, it's very applicable to the here and now, but it's also timeless in that you're gonna find truths here that God's people have clung to and lived out for centuries and centuries and centuries before us. So it's just, it's a great book. Are you ready? Can we, can we dive in? We, we've titled this series, Present Faithfulness, Future Hope. And I'd like to unpack some of that here this morning. What are some broad truths that we can extract from this book that help us be faithful in the here and now, rooted in the hope that God gives us? That's where we're gonna go. So we'll start in the very beginning of the book in the first verses here, Daniel chapter one, verses one through two. And understand, as we dance our way through the book today, we are gonna circle back around and give a more comprehensive look at each of these, but this is where we'll start. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And then he carried off to the temple of his God, and these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now you need to understand that in Near Eastern thinking, that when my army and your army fought one another, and my army defeated yours, I didn't just defeat you, I defeated your gods because my God or gods were stronger than yours. You lost the battle because your gods were wimpy, weak, or simply non-existent. And mine clearly was the stronger God. And so what's being communicated here is that 
Yahweh God, the one true God, has lost. That's what the Babylonians thought. By his very actions, that's what this king was saying by taking some of the holy, special articles from the temple and putting them in his own temple, in his own treasure house. Babylon didn't just defeat the Jews. In their thinking, they had defeated the Jews' God, and God had lost. So if you were betting on Yahweh God in your March Madness bracket, you bet on the wrong bracket. He, he lost. But is that really what happened? Because from the standpoint of many of the Jews, they had lost everything. They had lost their land, they had lost their temple, they had lost their identity, and they had lost their God because their God had lost. But is that really what happened? And the answer is no, not at all. Because God's word tells us and told them that this was going to happen. It was prophesied hundreds of years before this happened that if the Jewish people did not repent, if they did not return to God, if they did not live their life his way, his terms, so that he could bless them, then he would be forced to punish them and they would lose everything. And prophet after prophet after prophet told the people this. Isaiah told them this. Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of Daniel's, told them this. Over and over again, they were told, this is what's going to happen. God did not lose. God let this happen as an act of judgment after countless warnings to the people that they needed to repent and turn back to him. God didn't lose. God was, God was the one who allowed this to happen. It was an act of judgment. Yet I can imagine that in the minds of a number of the Jews, not only did it feel like God lost, was God real? Did he exist? Was he negligent? Was he, was he neglecting them? Or was he, worst case scenario, non-existent? And for 70 years, 70 years, they were exiled in Babylon. Over 70 years, actually. So how do you make sense out of that? Does it ever feel like in our day and age that God has lost? As our culture gets more and more broken, evil becomes more and more overt. That which is evil is called good and held up as the standard for all of us to live our lives by, as that continues to perpetuate, does it ever feel like God is lost? Or that maybe he's taken a break and stepped out and things are just kind of going the way that they're going? Well, whose version of reality are you going to accept? Whose version of reality were the Jews going to accept? Because circumstances, everyone around them in this hostile culture they were in was telling them, you've lost, your God isn't real. Your God is non-existent, or at the very least, he's neglectful. He doesn't really care about you. So whose voice are we gonna listen to today? Because it's so important, it's so crucial, it's so fundamental that the version of reality we subscribe to is God's, revealed to us by his 
word. God's word is what we should anchor ourselves to. Not what's going on around us, not what others say, but what God says. Because in the big picture, God is always at work. He's always building his kingdom. He's always working his plan. He's always fulfilling his promises, even when his promises take far longer than we think they should for him to fulfill. Do you believe that? Do you believe God is at work today? Whose version of reality are you listening to? Because one of the ways Daniel fuels our faith is that the things that were prophetic, that were future, that are talked about here are now history. They played out exactly, exactly the way God said they would. Consider this from Daniel chapter two, which we'll look at in greater detail in a couple weeks, but the king has this dream and wants it interpreted, and eventually Daniel is the one who interprets it, and this is what he says to the king of Babylon, your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and it smashed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. And the whim swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and it filled the whole earth. What's being talked about here? What we would know as history is being talked about here. A succession of kingdoms the gold head of the statue was the current king of Babylon, Daniel tells us. Babylon was the world power at the time. And then they were superseded by Medo-Persia. And then Greece came along. And then Rome came along. Just as God said they would, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before they did. That last there, the feet of clay and what that represents, there's still a lot of debate about that. Not really sure as definitively, but boy, those other four, absolutely, that's exactly what God said was going to happen hundreds of years before it happened. We gotta keep the big picture in mind. And we have to look at our present reality through the lens of God's word. Because that's what's real and that's what's true. And we can't lose sight of that. Because God is always at work, even if we can't see it. Even if it's not right there in front of us. Can I give you the littler picture of this? Last week I told you, by way of example, what a typical week for our elders looks like. And I told you some of the shepherding situations our elders were involved in. I told you that one of our elders was working with a family where someone was demonized. The rest of the story to those examples is that in this family, through that time of prayer and intercession, um, the, the son and the father spoke for the first time in years and there was some healing that happened in, in their relationship. The, the, the guy who is caught in porn right now is, is getting help and is repenting and, and is working his way through that. That marriage that was struggling and hurting is getting some resourcing and is, and is moving forward. That person who is bitter and critical is also choosing to repent and there's some healing that's going on in their life. That person who had 
some horrendous losses in their life, just deep, deep grieving and sorrow and hurt, who for years couldn't step inside of a church because of the nature of their grief journey and just what was going on, was in church for the first time last week. God is always at work in Daniel's day and in our day too, and we have to remember that. And because God is at work, it means that we join him in, the, in that work. We look for his work and we jump right in the middle of it. And we follow the Spirit as he guides and leads us. And that means we live our lives distinctly. And Daniel is an example of that. Daniel chapter um, one tells us this, that shortly after they were deported, they came to Babylon. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into his service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. And this is Daniel and his friends. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. Some of you are thinking, yeah, that describes me, right? Well, that's what these guys. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Jumping a little bit ahead. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Now we're gonna jump way ahead to Daniel chapter six where it describes his character. Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of governmental affairs, but they were unable to do so. Why? Because they could find no corruption in him, because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. We are called to live distinctly. And again, at the end of the day, we're not called to be like Daniel, we're called to be like Jesus. But let's, let's look at Daniel's example here though for just a minute. Daniel was good at what he did. Daniel took what God gave him and used it for God's glory. Catch this, by using what God had given him well by doing what he did well. We see the same trajectory, for those of you who know your Bibles and remember this story, in Joseph's life, in Genesis 49 and 50. He excelled at what he did. Do you realize that one of the ways we live distinctly in a culture that's always encouraging us to cut corners, be lazy, be the last one to work and the first one to leave work, to be the one to look for corners to cut or escape paths to take, in this culture, we can live distinctly by being good at what we do. The passions and gifts and abilities and talents God's given you, one of the foremost ways that you worship him is you go after those and you do those to the best of your ability. That's actually an act of worship. That's actually a way we live distinctly. It's by how we work, how we take what God has given us and use it for him because at the end of the day in Colossians 3.23 it tells us you don't work for your employer. You work for God. And God deserves our best because everything we have from him is ours to use for, for his glory. So man, do what you love to do and do it well. And don't feel guilty about that. 
Because sometimes we have this false sense of humility in our culture where, especially our Christian subculture, where we say as believers, well, you know, I don't, I don't really want to talk about what I'm passionate about, what I'm good at, what I'm gifted at, because, you know, that's arrogant. Well, there is a line there, but that's actually an act of worship. To do what you love to do and to do it well. They couldn't find any grounds to entrap Daniel in part because he was good at what he did. He had integrity, he worked hard, but he was good at what he did. Excellence is an act of worship, not perfection. There's a difference there, but excellent is, you bet. But there is another way we're called to live distinctly, and that is how we actually engage culture. Because there's really three schools of thought out there, and there's probably more, but they, I think, can be reduced to these. There's one school of thought that says, as Jesus followers, as Christians, we are to separate ourselves from culture. We are not to have anything to do with, with culture. There's another school of thought that's the other end of the spectrum that says, no, we're to assimilate in culture. We're to be part of culture. And I think there is another perspective, and I think it's the perspective we see from Daniel and we see from Jesus, and that is we are to be a faithful presence. Let's unpack that. Daniel, in some ways, separated himself from the culture, but not entirely, right? We see that in chapter one. He would not eat the food of the Babylonians. Number one, it violated the Jewish food laws and his act of worship there, but also it's, it's reasonably understood and assumed that much of that food was offered as part of idol worship, and so... It wasn't appropriate for him to eat it for those reasons. So he didn't, and his friends didn't eat the food of the culture, but they did assimilate in part into the culture, right? They learned the language, they learned the customs, and they did learn the culture and served in the culture. So there was some assimilation that took place, but what we'll see as we unpack this book, though, was Daniel, though, was a faithful witness. Didn't fully separate, didn't fully assimilate, but instead lived distinctly in a hostile culture, in a way that proclaimed the gospel, that, that honored God, and that pointed to God. And that's how we're called to live. And if we need the absolute best example of this, it's Jesus, right? Jesus did at times separate himself from the culture for, for prayer and worship and what have you, but, but he was engaged with the culture. And, and Jesus did assimilate in part in the culture in that he spent so much time with people who did not know God, people from the wrong side of the tracks, people who religious people wouldn't associate with, that the religious people said Jesus is a drunkard and a glutton because he goes to too many parties. He's with too many unbelievers. He's with the wrong people. But Jesus lived distinctly, did he not? And that's what we're called to be, is a faithful presence so it matters how we live our lives and Daniel will help instruct us in that but we're also called to do this and, and this is tough it's this idea of waiting in Daniel 9 it says this and we heard this in the overview in the first year of Darius son of Xerxes a Mede by descent who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign I Daniel understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. And we'll jump ahead here. 
an angel of the Lord appears to him and, and answers his prayer and gives him some specifics and says this, 77s are decreed from your people or for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, in fairness, there's a lot of discussion about what are the 77s. Is that symbolic language? Is that actual numbers? The Babylonians had a different calendar than we do with our Gregorian calendar. So as you start doing math, what does all this add up to? Well, really, what's kind of cool is that with either calendar, it almost to the day pinpoints Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, that this is pointing to Jesus. I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty amazing. But park that for just a minute. Because Jesus picks up on this same prediction and says this, and we'll come back to that point there. He picks up on this where it says, an abomination that causes desolation, that this is going to come. He picks up on this in Matthew 24. And the way he picks up on it, I think, is significant. Jesus and the disciples are coming out of the temple and Jesus turns and he says, all this is going to be raised to the ground. Jesus makes his own prophecy and then he connects it back to this passage in Daniel and quotes this, an abomination, abomination that causes desolation. And so the disciples do what you and I would do. They say, when? Give us a timeline. Tell us when this is going to happen. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't give them a timeline. He gives them truths. And one of those truths is that you're gonna have to wait for this to happen. And if you think back with me to Matthew 24 and Matthew chapter 25, in Matthew 24 he says, basically, I'm not gonna give you a timeline. That's not the point. And also in Matthew 24, he tells the parable of the 10 virgins. And then in Matthew 25, he tells the parable of the talents. And basically what he says is this. You watch for God's work. You wait. And while you wait, you work. Practicing worshipful, worshipful and purposeful waiting is what we are called to do as God's people. This is less about timelines and trying to figure out when God is going to do what he's going to do and more about living out the truths of his word in our daily lives. Worshipful waiting is purposeful and productive waiting. Do you wait well? This may not be true of you, but I don't. I wish I did, but I don't. You know, my browser takes an extra two or three seconds to refresh and I am not happy. Well, I need a new computer. This needs to be faster. I don't like to wait. And we completely misunderstand the principle here if we internalize this and process this and make sense out of this by thinking that waiting means doing nothing. Waiting means marking time. Waiting means wasted time. Waiting means we're not doing something productive. That is not at all a biblical principle of waiting and what is being modeled to and taught to us through this book. Daniel pleads with God, please, please bring an end to our exile, and God says, you're gonna have to wait. And if we begin to think about this more globally in scripture, before we feel too sorry for ourselves about having to wait on God for his promises, haven't God's people always had to wait? Did Abraham and Sarah have to wait on God? God makes this unbelievable covenant with Abraham, makes these unbelievable promises to Abraham, and Abraham never gets to see all of them. 
In fact, if you fast forward to the New Testament to Hebrews and Hebrews 11 and 12 and you see the hall of fame of faith of all these godly men and women who have gone before us and what does it say there? They all waited. They all saw these things at a distance, some of which now you are getting to experience and come to, come to fulfillment in Jesus but God's people have always had to wait. Big difference between marking time and wasting time and, and, and waiting. Jesus said he's gonna come back. It's been over 2,000 years since he said that. Do you believe him? Amen. One of you believes him, excellent. <laughs> I know more of you believe that than, than one person. But thank you, brother. Do you live your life like that's a reality? Because if you will listen to the voices that are not the Holy Spirit, you will hear, really? You really believe that? Jesus is gonna come back. Jesus is gonna do everything he said he was gonna do. Seriously, it's been 2,000 years. When is he gonna come back? He's not coming back. That's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. So what do we do while we wait? We worship by serving by joining his work, by advancing his kingdom, by taking the good news of who he is into this community and serving the community in the name of Jesus so we can tell him about who he is. And one of the most important ways we do that is through prayer. I am praying more and more for you than I ever have as your pastor because God in his infinite patience continues to teach me so lovingly and so patiently that prayer is not the last resort, it is the first resort. If you wanna practice worshipful, purposeful waiting, if you want to do something really productive, man, you pray. You pray for God to do his work in your life, in my life, in the lives of this church and in this community and in this, in this world. And I'm so excited. I'm just giving you a heads up. In May, we're gonna do something I don't think we've ever done before. We're gonna do, um, we're calling it a prayer summit. We're gonna take an entire day and we're not gonna talk about prayer. We're gonna do it. We're gonna pray all day. And if you've ever been to one of these, we've never done one here at Grace, but I've been to others, I, I am not overstating this. They are life-changing. It'll absolutely change the way you look and experience prayer and communion with God. So when that comes in May, I, I hope you'll make time to be a part of that because it will be powerful. Because God does something amazing when his people gather together and they pray. And we need to be all about prayer. Because prayer is what helps us remember the very things that we're talking about here and actually apply them and live them out. I'd like to leave you with this story that I found recently that talks about this reality. In an article in the New York Times Magazine, Dana Tierney described how both she and her husband John, a writer for the New York Times, had rejected their childhood faith. They had their son Luke baptized to placate their families, but that's about it. And when Dana's husband went to Iraq as an embedded reporter, Dana was understandably fearful. But she was surprised at how calm four-year-old Luke was. 
She assumed that it was just youthful naivety until one day when they were watching television together, they happened to see a wedding of a soldier who had recently returned from Iraq. And then the soldier described his fear of going back to Iraq. And for just an instant, Dana saw Luke form his hands to pray. When she asked him about it, Luke at first denied it, but after he did it a second time, he confessed that yes, he had been praying. Dana was stunned, partly by her son's faith, and partly how his faith allowed him to be calm, and her lack of faith caused her to be fearful. Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is what you do in the face of fear. There is a lot of fear in our culture. There are a lot of voices right now that are saying you should be afraid. But we have to remember God is not negligent. God is not non-existent. On the contrary, God is working his plan. He is bringing his kingdom. He is coming back. And until he does, he calls us to wait worshipfully and purposefully by living distinctively and productively for his kingdom. And in the next six months, we're gonna learn how we can do that even more together. And my prayer for you has and will continue to be that you can be presently faithful because of the future tangible hope of God. God, as we worship you through music and word, we thank you that you haven't left, you haven't lost, you haven't stepped out, you're not being neglectful, you are at work despite the brokenness of this world around us, despite the things that we could be fearful of. We thank you that you are God is at work. We can look at history and see the reality of that. We look at your word in front of us and are reminded that you are the God who always does what you say you're gonna do. You keep your promises even when you ask us to wait. So Lord, help us to worship you by how we wait, to work for you, to join you in your work and to trust you and to be changed and transformed as a result. Lord, thank you. Sink your truth deeply into us as we continue to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.